Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This is Heat of the Moment. I'm John Sutter. This season, we're devoting the podcast to the idea of a just transition, making sure that people are front and center as we push to move the economy to net zero. In the first few episodes, we talked a lot about what happens when you eliminate coal jobs and others from the fossil fuel industry as we shift to cleaner energy sources. Who wins and loses? And how do we lessen the pain when the energy sector makes this massive transformation? But the idea of a just transition goes well beyond that. It's about protecting communities that are on the front lines of the climate crisis as well. That's where we'll focus our energies today. Later in the show, we'll hear from an indigenous youth activist and a human rights lawyer about how to get a seat at the table when major decisions are being made. But first, we're going to highlight a story from South America. It explores the potential benefits of bringing lots of different kinds of people together to make big decisions about a scarce resource. Reporter Amy Booth brings us this story from Bolivia. Maria Binda Gutierrez Padilla lives with her family on their medium-sized plot of land in the community of Forestal Playón in Santa Cruz Department in eastern Bolivia. Her cabin on the hill looks out over intense green tropical forests. In her garden, the branches of mango trees are hanging heavy with ripening fruit, their skins starting to blush pink. In the woods out back, wild birds trill and chirp. Here, she makes a living producing mandarins, oranges, limes, fish and honey. When her family bought their land, it was all forest and they cut down some of the trees so they could grow crops. Ever since she was a girl, she has understood the importance of protecting the area's water. Back then, her family had to rely on nearby rivers and streams for their domestic needs because they had no piped water connection. For washing clothes, bathing, it was the river. And the stream was for cooking, drinking. We put metal sheets under it so it came out straight out into our canister. Although it's been years since Maria Binda has depended on the stream for drinking water, the need to look after water has become more urgent than ever in Santa Cruz and throughout Bolivia. In late 2015, the country's second largest lake, Lake Popo, dried up entirely because of climate change and demand from industries like mining and agriculture. Then, in 2016, an ongoing drought became so severe that the government declared a state of emergency and the administrative capital, La Paz, had to implement water rationing. Two of the main three dam reservoirs feeding the city of La Paz are at 8% capacity, while the third is in the danger zone at just 1%. A series of factors make Bolivia particularly susceptible to climate disasters, including both drought and flooding. Straddling snow-capped Andean peaks and dense Amazon rainforest, its territory is vast, diverse and sparsely populated. It's also one of the poorest countries in South America, with a GDP per capita of around $3,400 per year, according to the World Bank. 
Driving down winding dirt roads near Maria Binda's farm, you pass arid hillsides where a few cattle are grazing. In some places, the edge of the forest is a perfectly straight line. It looks unnatural, as if a giant hand has scraped away the trees with a tool. It's a sharp contrast from the verdant greenery on Maria Binda's land. Perhaps surprisingly, a recent study in the journal Frontiers in Climate found that Bolivia actually has some of the highest per capita carbon emissions in the world, largely due to deforestation for soybean farming and cattle ranching in the Amazon and Chiquitano regions. Destroying the forest doesn't just contribute to climate change and loss of biodiversity. It also means there's less water for local communities because when it rains, the water just runs off rather than being absorbed into the earth. This leads to more problems with flooding during the rainy season, but when the dry season comes, there isn't enough water to go around. What's more, when that land is cleared for cattle ranching, for example, their faecal matter often pollutes the water. While many of those destroying the forests are large landowners, the study's authors also said that small farmers who migrate from the mountain plains to the warm lowlands often fell trees as they attempt to make a living from the fertile land there. That's why it's so important that schemes to prevent deforestation and preserve the Amazon prioritize the needs of low-income and vulnerable groups. So, how can rural families like Beanbas survive without felling trees to farm their land? They don't want to contribute to the destruction of the forest, but they also need a way of making a living. Around 20 years ago, a new idea started to emerge, called a reciprocal water agreement. This involved providing farmers like Maria Binda with a means of making a living from their land without clearing the forest. The key component of this agreement was to spread out the burden of preserving land among everyone who depends on an area's water resources, so that water users upstream and downstream are working in reciprocity. Maria Binda first heard about the plan from a relative and immediately became interested. I have a cousin who lives further up, who put her land in conservation too. I didn't know about it until she told me about it. It's now been years since Maria Binda has cut down a tree. If you want to see it as technology, it's something very simple. This is another Maria, Maria Teresa Vargas. She's the executive director of Natura Bolivia, the NGO that pioneered the water agreements in the early 2000s. The idea was first put forward during negotiations between communities who were trying to settle a long-running water conflict around the village of Los Negros. The main complaint was that people living downstream were running out of water. They blamed those living upstream who were deforesting their land. They said that their neighbors cutting down the trees meant they had less water and what there was was dirtier. It was a really big conflict, violent even. So when the people from the lower river basin came to the upper river basin, some of the campesinos would come out with their machetes to defend their territory. For three years, the communities and Natura Bolivia tried to hash out solutions to the problem, but nothing seemed to work. 
In the end, their idea of organising to pay into a fund to support their neighbours up the river to conserve their land came from the communities themselves. So for us, they are always an inspiration because I think that really, at a local level, there are a lot of ideas about how to manage natural resources and we have to be willing to listen to them, basically to their needs to be able to find long-term or medium-term solutions. These water agreements compensate upstream farmers for the trees they leave in the ground by providing them with resources and technical support to adopt more sustainable ways of using their land, such as beekeeping or fruit farming. The low slopes around Maria Binda's home are planted with rows of mandarin trees. At the tree line where the forest starts, five squat white boxes contain beehives. These were provided by Natura Bolivia. She earns around 5,000 bolivianos a year from selling the honey her bees produce. That's around $740, or two months' pay at minimum wage. She takes pride in both the quality and the purity of her product. I sell it all because here, for example, we don't put molasses in it, nothing. It's just citrus flowers, avocado too, and wildflowers. With beekeeping, it's marvelous because people who start to keep bees can only have honey if they conserve the forest. That's Vargas again. Because bees need about two kilometers of flora in the forest so they can go and come back and produce honey. Generally, agriculture sign a contract promising not to deforest their land for five years. For example, Maria Binda has 29 hectares of land. That's like 29 rugby fields. But she only farms around three of them. In her contract, she has promised to preserve 25 hectares of forest and in return, she's been given the beehives. Vargas says there are around 22,000 farmers in the program. The local community makes sure their members are fulfilling their agreement, and Natura Bolivia also performs checks with satellite imagery. Downstream from Maria Binda's farm in the town of El Torno, water users say they've seen a marked improvement in their water supply since joining the reciprocal water agreement. Scientists at Natura Bolivia believe this is because the forests, and therefore the water cycles, are starting to stabilize and even slowly recover. Before, families in El Torno didn't have enough water during the dry season. Sometimes no water would come out of the taps until late at night. Wealthier families bought tanks to store the water, but many people had no choice but to get up early to wash. If they left it too late, the water ran out, sometimes halfway through a shower. Well, they had to grab whatever they could, you know, buy barrels, buckets, and fill up at night when the water reached their taps. This is Renan Seas Montenegro. He's vice president of the administrative board at Seapas, the town's water and sanitation cooperative. He lives in El Torno with his wife and their four children. Like many places in Bolivia, Locals rely on the water cooperative to get fresh water because their community is not served by a larger state utility or a private provider. The households in the cooperative contribute one boliviano, or around 15 cents, each month, which is added to their water bill. The local government and, in some cases, companies contribute too. Neighbouring cooperatives have joined the agreement, and he says there are now around 12,000 members, 
It creates a virtuous cycle of sorts. The more people who join the agreement, the more funds can go towards protecting forests and the more water sources that can be protected. Seas hopes to see the scheme grow. He says the local government is working to create a protected area in the municipality of El Torno that would preserve another 18,000 hectares of land. And there's reason to believe it will catch on. According to Natura Bolivia, around 400,000 water users are now paying into reciprocal water agreements, protecting over 530,000 hectares of forest in Bolivia, an area larger than the US state of Delaware. The model is catching on internationally too. It's already been implemented in Mexico, Peru, Ecuador, Colombia and Honduras, and Natura Bolivia has also run training sessions in India, Nepal, South Africa, Madagascar and Kenya. Back at Maria Binda's farm, she says the land brings her peace. Here I feel complete, I feel happy, I feel calm. Here I have, I don't know, something I can't explain. I like it. And preserving that tranquility for future generations is something nobody can put a price tag on. For Heat of the Moment, I'm Amy Booth. Our thanks to reporter Amy Booth. By banding together to create this cooperative, this Bolivian town was able to make sure that the needs of disparate communities were taken into account. Making sure everyone has a seat at the table is imperative if we want this transition to actually be just and inclusive which is why youth activists like Erica Chanani Calvillo Ramirez are getting involved. It's like these things are connected, right? Like development and what it costs to nature. Chanani is a student in Mexico City. And in her spare time, she pushes for change through a nonprofit that she founded, as well as through her social activism. She's a youth leader at the OECD, an international group focused on economic growth. And this is one of the issues, the issues around extractivism of like putting the lives of some people first and then the lives of others. Chanani and her family, like numerous other indigenous people around the world, are often disproportionately harmed by the health and environmental impacts of the fossil fuel industry. Her grandmother lives in the major oil and gas hub of Veracruz. This place is like sad to go through now because even in the night, it looks like the sky's burning because of all the refineries. So, you know, there's this history of indigenous people and young people, you know, among others, being excluded from a lot of the policymaking at an international level around climate change and and just from activism and from like kind of the broader conversation around climate just generally. I think there are like some signs that that's changing just very recently, but it's a troubling history. And I'm just curious about your thoughts on that, what you think about the importance of youth voices and indigenous voices in the conversation about the transition away from fossil fuels. So, yeah, like you said, like now the tendencies might be like progressive and people are trying to like engage or incorporate these voices to the conversation. But I think that still sometimes now that is a dynamic to like legitimize the same system that hasn't changed at all. I wonder what it would look like for you to have like actual inclusion, right? For um, the global community to actually 
hear and incorporate the the perspectives of young people and indigenous people and, and people from the global south and yeah so like for me the actual engagement of youth and indigenous voices will be to like actually take their demands onto action what the government is doing is that they are silencing them and most of the time erasing it like mexico and latin america are like the danger, most dangerous places to be like an environmental defender. So yeah, to me, like the actual engagement of that will be to like create those political systems where people can actually make a change, not only to like share a discourse, not only to like share an insight or that their opinions and demands are actually taken into shaping the project. I'm wondering if you can speak to what that feels like as a young person who's, you know, advocating for climate action and environmental change? Is that tension something you feel on a day-to-day level? Does it ever push you towards silence? Is it something you rebel against? I just, I, I can't imagine, you know, facing that intense uh, sort of life and death pressure in a day-to-day way. Yeah, I think that for most of us, we try to ignore it. Like we try to like not think about it most of the time because the youth, no, it's dangerous. My thanks to Erica Chanani Calvillo Ramirez, a student activist based in Mexico City. Activists like Chanani are on the front lines of making sure that their communities are being represented when big decisions are made about climate and energy policy. For this transition to clean energy to be just, they have to be heard. You have to make sure that people are informed, that they're able to participate in decisions, that they have remedies for harms against them, procedural built-in protections. That's John Knox, our next guest. He served as the UN's first ever special rapporteur on human rights and the environment. He's worked firsthand with communities like Chanani's to advocate on their behalf during international negotiations. When I was working a few years ago in Mexico, I was meeting with people there, including representatives of rights-based organizations and indigenous peoples, and the Mexican government was installing a vast new solar farm on the land of one indigenous people in particular. Now, solar farms in general are good things, right? We're moving away from fossil fuels towards renewable energy. That's a good thing. But they're installing this solar farm on the ancestral territory of an indigenous people and thereby severing their ties with their ancestral land. That's a great example. It's a terrible example, but it's a great example of what an unjust transition is. You're moving in the direction that we need to move away from fossil fuels, but you're doing it at the expense of people who have absolutely not contributed to the problem. And frankly, you're violating their human rights on the way. You're not asking them what they think about having to bear the burden of this transition. You're just telling them this is going to be felt by you. There's been this very vocal push from fossil fuel workers saying we're getting left out in this transition, right? Like we're employed in the current economy, a clean energy economy excludes us. And on some level that's unfair. And I I wonder what you make of that sort of line of thinking or what you think is owed or not owed to people who have made their living in fossil fuel work? I think it is important to take into account those who are most vulnerable, most at risk as a result of the change. At the same time, the way we need to address those issues is not by maintaining jobs in the fossil economy. Like that just 
can't be the solution for this. The solution has to be to help them transition out to other jobs. And I will just say, this kind of change is one that we're very familiar with as an international society, right? I mean, two generations ago in the country you and I both live in, most of the workers were essentially agricultural workers in one way or the other. That's absolutely changed over the course of the 20th century. People left the farms because farming became so much technologically different than it had been before. But the answer to that was never suggested to be, well, let's just reverse those technological changes and make sure that people can stay on the farms as long as they'd like to. There's no reason to have a different attitude when it comes to transition away from the fossil economy. Is there any example of where this has been done well, like either in in history, right, where like a technological shift occurred and we moved from one type of industry to another, or with this shift to cleaner energy now, like where, you know, there's been a concerted effort to like sort of soften that blow. Like, are there any like case studies you look to as like positive examples? I mean, there are some examples, again, using the United States as an example. In the 1990s, there was a concerted effort to try and um, essentially soften the blow on certain industries of greater international trade. The idea was that because of NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, the WTO agreements, there would be people losing their job to foreign competition. And rather than just having them say, well, that's too bad for you, find new jobs, there was a concerted effort to try and help them with that transition, partly through educational support and partly through financial support. I mean, we're living in a world increasingly in which we're already paying enormous costs for living in a essentially a carbon polluted society. And so the consequences of living in a world with a stable climate are so fundamentally important that I do hope that people realize they're benefiting from those changes, but the goal has to be to make that transition in a way that benefits everyone. It's possible for many groups, not just the big energy companies, to benefit from the transition away from fossil fuels. This transition can be good for people while at the same time helping to stabilize the atmosphere and avoid the catastrophic climate impacts we otherwise face. This is a huge shift, though, and that's critical to remember, as John Knox notes. There are still huge gaps between what we say we need to do and what's actually happening on the ground. We are nowhere close to where we need to be on the transition at all. The important thing is to realize that how we move is as important as how quickly we move. We need to move in ways that are sustainable over time, but to have sustainable change, you have to have buy-in from the people who are most affected. That was John Knox, former special rapporteur on human rights and the environment at the United Nations. My thanks to both Chanani and John for joining us. Next week on Heat of the Moment, we know that we must ditch fossil fuels in order to avoid the worst of the climate crisis. But what are the unintended consequences of this shift? And that goes back to what communities prioritize, what the trade-offs they're willing to accept are, because every single technology we talk about, every single policy has trade-offs, period. That's next week on Heat of the Moment. Heat of the Moment is a partnership between foreign policy and the Climate Investment Funds. Our production staff includes Rosie Julin, Rob Sachs, Scott Andrews, Hugh Seawright, Dan Efron, Laura Rossbrow-Tellum, Claudia Tatey, and Yurei Wu. 
The Climate Investment Funds is a nonpartisan champion of climate action. Political views and opinions expressed in this series do not necessarily represent those of the Climate Investment Funds, foreign policy, or their partners. Until next week, I'm John Sutter. Thanks for listening.